In preparation for teaching the course on Tuesday nights on bioethics this fall, I took some time this summer to read the new edition of a widely used undergraduate introduction to bioethics published just this year by Oxford University Press. Although it covered many of the core issues in the field, moral reasoning, paternalism and autonomy, truth-telling and confidentiality, informed consent, human research, reproductive technologies, dividing up healthcare costs. It only lightly touched on some of the emerging issues that most interested me. Here's the problem. Technology is advancing so quickly that even a textbook published this year can end up in many ways behind the curve. In my um, revised plan, I said, well, we'll still cover those classic topics, but I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this in school, that uh, you end up kind of getting off the pace that the teacher thought you would be on, or maybe you've been the teacher with this, and all of a sudden you have to rush through all that really interesting contemporary stuff at the end. So what we decided to do was, we'll still talk about the classic topics, but we're going to start with the, we're going to start with now and the future. And I talked about some of that in a sermon from back in September that some of you will remember about the revolutionary new gene editing technology CRISPR. And I knew I had likely made the right decision to start with cutting-edge issues when the morning after preaching that sermon, I woke up to open the New York Times and the the below-the-fold cover story was about CRISPR, totally unrelated to my sermon, of course. The New York Times does not care what I say. Uh, It was about the ethics of access around these new CRISPR technologies. Who should have access to them? Who will pick up the tab? The title of the article was, New Gene Therapies Will Carry Whopping Price Tags. And so through this short six-week course on um, bioethics this fall, I invited the class to be on the lookout for news stories about the issues we were talking about. I call it bioethical show-and-tell. And without fail, multiple members of the class each week would find new articles just within that five-week span of the class. Things like the BBC reporting on um, scientists in the UK editing um, DNA in a human embryo for the first time. The Washington Post reporting on mutant butterflies revealing the genetic roots of colorful wings. Things like the New York Times reporting on the Zika virus growing deadlier with a small mutation. Now that wasn't caused by Zika, but it was pointed out as a parallel to how things like Zika that can edit genes, you toy with a little bit and it may have uh, implications. They could be really good, but they could also be bad. The overall point, again, is that the pace of change is um, breathtaking. It's sort of like a roller coaster with technology these days, that it's both exhilarating and terrifying at the same time. I encourage you to keep on the lookout for future articles about CRISPR and other bioethical issues. Uh, CRISPR, as many of you have likely seen, is is an acronym. It's spelled with all capital letters. It stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. You're all going to remember that, right? Uh, But actually, don't worry, because kind of like DNA, it doesn't actually matter if you remember that DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. It matters that you know that DNA is a molecule related to your genetic code, right? That's the important part, not what the acronym stands for. Similarly, unless you're going into biochemistry, then you probably should remember. Uh, Similarly, you don't have to remember what CRISPR stands for if you remember that it's something like a designer molecular Swiss army knife. 
And with this designer molecular Swiss Army knife, you, um, scientists can edit not only our human somatic cells, that is to make changes within our bodies, they can also edit what are called the human germline cells. And the difference is that germline cells, once you have them done, you then pass on those changes to future generations. What that means is that we humans, our selves products of the evolutionary process, suddenly have the ability to, be, to begin micromanaging evolution. However, since we spent a good deal of time reflecting on that challenge in September, today I'd like to invite us to glimpse into related bioethical challenges to come in the near future. So not the things that are like hundreds of years, but the things that we're just on the cusp of. The best guide for this that I found recently is a book titled Our Grandchildren Redesigned, Life in the Bioengineered Society of the Near Future. It was published by the UUA's own Beacon Press um, last year. It's by Michael Bess. He's a professor at Vanderbilt University who specializes in the history of technological change. And although I recommend his book, um, Best knows that not everyone's going to read it, so he himself actually points beyond his book to say that there's a lot of ways in which TV and film are also great ways to interact with uh, thinking about ethical challenges. Some of the best um, science fiction films and TV shows, I'll just give you five examples for now among um, many more. The first is Avatar. How many of you saw Avatar? back in 2009. I would assume a lot of you because it was the first film to make more than $2 billion at the box office. So a lot of people saw it even more than once. And because it made a lot of money, sequels are scheduled for 2020, 2021, 2024, and 2025. So get ready for more Avatar to come. But the point is, uh, it was about these avatars, right? It was about remotely located humans in one place controlling genetically engineered bodies. Right, the avatars and, and some of the ethical implications there. Another good place to start is Battlestar Galactica. The old one is fine, but especially the new one, if any of you have seen the sort of 21st century four-season remake, it depicts humans at war with an android race of their own creation. So wrestling with that. Uh, or Ex Machina. Did anybody see that two years ago? Really, really great film. I see just a few hands. That one's really worth checking out. It's about an android... Uh, whether an android capable of thought and is it, whether an android is capable of thought of consciousness, and whether a human can relate to this android despite knowing that she is artificial, or a few years before that, some of you may remember her with Joaquin Phoenix, basically falling in love with Siri. Uh, on your phone. It's about a, a man developing a relationship with an intelligent computer operating system personified by a female voice. Not unproblematically, uh, both these films are sort of about the male gaze, right? Separate sermon, but little footnote there. The final one I'll mention is that the HBO series Westworld, uh, first season last year, another season's coming out next year, about a technologically advanced Wild West-themed amusement park populated by android hosts who look, you really can't tell the difference between them and humans. So another um, place, lots of great places to explore all of this. So if you do watch or revisit some of our culture's best science fiction, Bess has some suggestions for two common pitfalls to be aware of. It's not that you should avoid these shows that make these errors. It's rather about equipping yourself to be aware as you watch shows of what is the part that's more science in the science fiction, that is the stuff that's really going to probably become reality, and what's the more fiction part of the science fiction that's just the entertaining part. Uh, of the two common pitfalls, the first is what Best calls the Jetsons fallacy. 
Some of you recall that Hanna-Barbera cartoon. It's from 1962, and it projected what life might be like precisely 100 years in the future, so in 2062. And for those of you who can um, picture images of the Jetsons in your head, any of you too young, you can Google image it later. Uh, Here's the fundamental flaw with the Jetsons. It shows us a future world in which technology has evolved dramatically, even radically, but in which humans stay fundamentally the same. And that will not be the case. Among many other examples that are guilty of the Jetsons' fallacy, at least in some respect, are Star Wars, Star Trek, Blade Runner, AI, Gattaca, all really worthwhile series to engage with or films. But in each of these instances, you get alien biological species and intelligent robots coexisting along unmodified humans, pretty much like us. Related issues with works like The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, Inspector Gadget, Iron Man, Limitless, is that in those cases, modifications are uniquely confined to one individual instead of spread out amongst the surrounding population. So although our actual future will almost inevitably include wealthy individuals who can afford the highest end of technology, changes will be much more widespread than is shown in works that commit the Jetsons' fallacy. Relatedly, keep your eye out for the Terminator fallacy, which is affectionately known as the paranoid cousin of the Jetsons' fallacy. The Terminator fallacy, named after a series of films um, starring uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger playing a killer cyborg from the future, right, a cyborg assassin from the future, that imagines that machines will be our enemies. Best cautions that the much more insidious truth is that through biotechnology, the machines will be increasingly us. For example, today in 2017, I'd assume most of you, um, and if this isn't the case for you, we'll make an appointment and talk about it, but I'll assume that most of you can tell the difference between yourselves and the vehicles that got you here this morning, right? between the difference between you and your technology. That may seem stupidly obvious. But with forthcoming bio-enhancements, machines will be increasingly integral to ourselves, especially with advances in nanotechnology, and this is way more, not quite the near future, through the ability to increasingly manipulate matter on the super-tiny atomic scale, the line will especially blur between ourselves and technology. To give you an example of what I mean, Uh, I suspect there are at least a few people in this room that are avid smartphone users. And at least for some of those avid smartphone users, if you ever misplace your smartphone, think about how you feel. I suspect at least some of you feel a little bit disoriented, a little bit lost, maybe like a piece of yourself is missing. Smartphones are an example of technology that changes how we are in the world and changes our sense of self. Or think about how you feel when you lose electricity in the house. I suspect for at least some of us, um, losing electricity changes how you feel about the world. And, you know, there's so many, think about all the films and TV shows where humanity loses electricity and all of a sudden we're dealing with a hellscape dystopia, right? Because it, it changes things a lot. Uh, So whereas the Terminator fallacy, though, imagines that those machines are out there and one day they're going to come to get us, uh, the truth is that biotechnology related to ourselves will insidiously continue to alter our sense of what it means to be human. Indeed, there's a burgeoning field of study related to that called transhumanism that relates to things like Nancy was talking about earlier, like Kurzweil's um, theories around the uh, singularity. 
I should perhaps hasten to add as well a few other examples of how I'm very much not talking hypothetically. When you have a chance later, Google paralyzed woman moves robot with her arms. So Nancy shared earlier about how her husband, um, Ron, uh, designed robot arms as part of his career. Well, this YouTube video from 2012 shows a woman named Kathy Hutchinson, who's been a quadriplegic since having a stroke, feeding herself for the first time in 15 years using a robotic arm controlled solely by her thoughts. So she has a sensor implanted in her brain, and with that, she can make the arm pick up a glass, bring it to her mouth, drink it, and put it back down, all just by thinking about it, by this sensor that's been uh, hooked up to her brainwaves. Watching this video, it's easy to imagine it won't be long before we humans can similarly control an exoskeleton, a drone, a robot, and more. Extrapolating further, wired and connected to each other through a computer interface, how long before two people can directly share thoughts and memories and feelings brain to brain. There's a lot more examples I'd like to give you, but to paint in really broad strokes, the near future will increasingly include pills to make us stronger and faster. Devices that will interface with our brain and genetic modifications that will allow us to reshape our physical and mental identities at will. We already have versions of all of these technologies, but they will be increasingly more potent and finely calibrated. Uh, the late Terence McKenna, who did theories around some of this, used to say that the drugs of the future will be computers and the computers of the future will be drugs. Think about that a little bit. <laughs> so, and if we don't get ahead of the curve and help co-create a future that is fair for all and not merely for some, the implications will be this growing rift between the biologically enhanced and those who can't afford modifications. It will be a constant cycle of upgrades. So as what we mean by normal, the bar will rise higher and higher. We'll get humans 95, humans XP, humans Vista, humans 8 gradually blurring the boundary between person and product. Extreme forms of self-modification with some individuals no longer recognized as unambiguously human. There's a lot more to say about all this, and I'll talk a little bit about it more in the spring in a sermon about artificial intelligence in particular. But for now, I'll limit myself to highlighting just two major points that may help us for navigating the bioethics of the future. The first is the parallels that are very strong between future bioethical dilemmas and two major debates in our society at present, um, healthcare reform and tax reform, which are both related to the underlying issues of wealth inequality. A fundamental question that will only be exacerbated by biotech is whether we are going to allow a society and tolerate a society with peace, liberty, and justice only for an elite few, or are we going to build a world with at least a minimum floor of benefits for all? At the heart of the healthcare debate is whether we will create a world with universal access to healthcare. Uh, or, or will we allow um, healthcare um, problems to devastate uh, unnecessarily families and individuals? Will we tolerate the creation of a biostratified caste system in which the most effective enhancement technologies are prohibitively expensive and accessible only to the rich? Or will we create a system of universal access for all to at least a basic package of um, enhancement technologies, at least for those who want them. In addition to the question of universal ac access, the second major point I would highlight is the issue of privacy, in particular mental privacy. 
As you have heard me say before, it's no coincidence that companies like Google and Facebook offer their products seemingly for free, right? If you scratch the surface, you'll see, though, that the platform is free because who's the product? We're the product, right? You're paying by sharing your data, by sharing details of your private life that can then be commodified and sold to advertisers and other entities. This dynamic will increase many times over with biotechnology. It's that instead of just having technology in our pocket that's reporting back to us, you'll, it'll be increasingly integrated into ourselves at all times and places. Now, we spent a good bit of time this morning trying to project ourselves into the near future, and there's a lot of wisdom in that practice. After all, in the words of one of our classic UU hymns, we tend to be a people who revere the past but trust the dawning future more. We are a theologically liberal religious tradition, giving us a natural inclination to hope in the ways that forthcoming technological innovations really can improve lives, really can lessen suffering. But there are shadow sides to everything as well. So as I move to my conclusion, I want to end on a different note by inviting us to hear the prophetic caution of writers like Wendell Berry. I would recommend his work um, broadly to you. Uh, He's what I would call a conservative in the best sense of the word, caring about the conservation of nature, upholding the beauty of traditions, reminding us of the importance of community and authority, sanctity and loyalty. And I want to amplify Barry's words because I have no doubt that the big four, have you heard the acronym GAFA? If you haven't, you will. So Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, GAFA, the, the big four companies that are, are you know, our, our GAFA overlords uh, that are directing our lives. I have no doubt that they will do everything in their power to sell us on all the advantages of the coming biotechnology while trying to, don't talk about the, you know, the disadvantages. And with that, Barry offers a vital counterbalance that uh, the GAFA companies don't always want you to hear. I'll give you just one um, excerpt from his work. Barry writes, I knew a man who in the age of chainsaws went right on cutting his wood with a handsaw and an axe. He was a healthier and a saner man than I. I shall let his memory trouble my thoughts. So it was, it was part of an essay called Why I Will Not Buy a Computer. You know, Barry's writing about why I continue to write by hand. The creators of all these new products, they want us to ask, what will this allow me to do that I couldn't do before? What they don't want you to ask is, do I want to do this thing? Uh, the more important question similarly may be, how does this new capability contribute or take away from my quality of life? Marketers want us to ask, What shall I do with my newfound powers? The more important question, though, may be, do I really need this? And what are the indirect or hidden drawbacks? There's a real risk of biotechnology turning our species into just another product, turning us into just another product competing against other one of us as other products in this seething market of rival products. But our first UU principle invites us into a different worldview. That each of us in this present moment is already a human being of inherent worth and dignity. Always already. Right here, right now. As radical as the coming biotechnology will be, and it will be radical. It will change us to our roots. 
That's what that word radical means. I promise you that embracing your own inherent worth and dignity will always be the more radical choice. Can you feel that tension within yourself? I mean, I will admit that I can. Uh, that, can you feel on one hand that dissatisfaction when you see that new thing that maybe you want? That's not going to be true for everybody, but I think for a fair amount of us. Take a second right now to remember when's that last time you drove by a billboard or saw an ad or saw some other new car or device or whatever that somebody, that somebody else had that you wanted. Feel that dissatisfaction within yourself. And contrast that with taking a deep breath in. And let it go. Breathe out the propaganda. And remind yourself in this season of gratitude, this season of thanksgiving, of the many ways in which what we already have, who we already are in this present moment, right here and right now, is already enough. You are already enough. You are already sufficient. You are already a blessing. That view of inherent worth and dignity of every person is the more radical choice. So in the days to come, especially these days of Thanksgiving, how much you experiment with some of that, experiment with receiving life as it is, as a gift, with reverence, with beholding over molding. In that spirit, may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another and care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste and touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, a way to navigate into the near future and to build a world that we dream about, that goes with you. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving. Go in peace.